You are listening to TLRStation.com. Worldly Connections is all about bringing magic into your life. Janet Wizawadi, visionary coach and consultant, is on a mission to empower people to keep moving forward, have a vision, and trust that something good will come of it. Worldly Connections inspires listeners to live happy and be happy through the power of conversation and positive energy from Janet and other experts who believe that life is a team sport and when you work together, miracles happen. And now, here is your host, Janet Wizawati. Welcome to Worldly Connections on TLR Station. I'm really happy today to introduce uh, a new person to interview, and it's Randy Kolababa. And we're from the same arena, should I say, we're uh, both uh, retired from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, Randy's career uh, as a regular member took him all over the place, all over Saskatchewan, and then I believe into British Columbia, but also to uh, to overseas, to um, what did you call it? Was it? It wasn't NATO. What were you part of, Randy? The United Nations mission to Kosovo, Yugoslavia. Yeah, so this is going to be so interesting. I, I've read the book, and uh, I loved it. So welcome, Randy. I'm excited to have you today. Welcome, and thank you for having me, Janet. So you grew up in, in uh, was it Alberta that you grew up in, uh, northern in, Alberta? I was born in Grand Prairie and grew up in Calgary, yes. Mm-hmm. Now, had you always wanted to be a member, or was that something that happened in your childhood? No, actually, it, it, I wanted to uh, be a professional hockey player at first, and then as circumstances presented itself, which I talk about in the book, um, when I was playing junior hockey in southern Alberta, I, I met a policeman who I uh, really started to admire the Royal Canadian Mounted Police when I was at a tender age of about 16, 17. And when hockey didn't work out, it just so happened uh, the opportunity with the RCMP did unfold, and uh, the rest is history. Well, I know you had a little bit of a journey, uh, just as my husband did. You started off not going directly to depot, and that's, uh, for those of you that aren't in Canada, that's uh, the central training area for the Radio, uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. You became a special constable first, as my husband did, uh, before he got into the force. Now, our background was that he was married and couldn't get into the regular at that time. That was the first time they let married members in. But you came in in what year, 77? Uh, I joined in 1978. I applied in 77. And for me, uh, I became a special constable because there was a moratorium on recruiting at the national level. And apparently I did quite well in the entrance exams and they needed uh, some people to guard prisoners and transport prisoners and escort prisoners from one jurisdiction or province to another. And uh, they offered me that position until uh, I could get into regular training in Regina. Well, I love your story. Uh, it took me back to memories of our travels and stuff. And But you went a little further, and you talk about it in your book. So what inspired you to write the book? It's called The Lies Behind the Truth. Basically, Janet, um, it, myself included, a lot of people, the vast majority of people that I've met and I've come across through you know professional and personal circumstances, we're basically living um, a lie. We're living under the false impression of what happiness is. 
Um, when we understand when we're born, the clock of life starts to tick. We don't have a whole bunch of time on this earthly plane to make a difference and to experience what life is. And at a very early age, you know, it's fairly carefree. Uh, we could dream. And if you wanted to dream of being an astronaut when you were a young child, you were an astronaut. And when you wanted to be a doctor, you could be a doctor, a policeman, nurse, whatever. But at that early age, we're starting to be conditioned um, more what we can't do than what we can do. And that leads us to eventually give up our dreams and just follow the expectations of what others believe are happiness. And, and then we end up living a, living a life just to exist for the other day. And, and for me, I found out that life wasn't just about paying bills. Um, that's not living. And when I understood that, uh, from from different levels, what have I experienced? And uh, I decided that I, I that I needed to get that story out because a lot of other people I found were li like I said living under the same impression. And when you understand that that's not true, that true happiness and the manifestation of peace and harmony doesn't come from what you own. It doesn't come from what's on your wall. It doesn't come from how much money you have in the bank or what you have in the driveway, but it comes from within. And when you understand that, all of a sudden you, you start to realize the potential. And then your, your paradigm changes from what's in it for me to how may I serve. And then incredible things happen. So that was basically my inspiration to write the book is understanding that we don't have to live that lie anymore. But that didn't come right away, right? It took a journey. So can you tell us a little more about your journey part, about your travels and that, and what brought you to the point to finally write your book? I know you talk about uh, uh, Anita Mariani's book, uh, Dying to Be Me, and uh, you talk a lot about Wayne Dyer. Now, those, did they come? Have you always read them, or was there a turning point to the to, for you to start looking at that side of it? I started really wondering in about 2004, 2005, and I was introduced, uh, not to the, the, the Secret, the, the movie The Secret, but I was introduced to, uh, the first book I read was Greg Braden's book. Um, and when when you... And you talk about my journey. Um, when I was young, it was um, I was I was always raised, and I think we all from our for our generation were raised to um, under the understanding that to be success is you have to have more, to be more, uh, and those types of things. And and I'll draw a comparison when we were young. Um, your, your spelling test, your math test, you have to have that little gold star on your test or in the sports track meets, you have to have all the blue ribbons. Well, and then when you get out of school, you have to go to college or university and you have to have a big job, big, you know, all this power and prestige. And that was your definition of happiness. And for me, I was conditioned for that. And all I found was a lot of frustration. And 
And I was lucky enough to get into the RCMP, as I said. I did well. I spent some time as a special constable. And then um, I joined the RCMP. And within the first couple of years of my service, uh, I unfortunately was in a situation where I had to take a man's life in the line of duty. And it's something I'm definitely not proud of. Um, but I can tell you that I was in a fight for my life. This man, we were in a dirt field. Uh, and it, was, it started from a routine traffic check. And he was intending, no doubt in my mind, to, to take my life. And we were in a fight. And, and, and then I started, I guess that's the first time I started questioning things like, why me? You know, really seriously, why me? And um, that's where I think my journey really started was December 5th, 1981 at 105 a.m. Wow. And you also, now I'm jumping a bit because I'm going to the book. Um, you also had quite an experience when you were in Kosovo with a little boy, right? Yes, I did. I, uh, and and uh, with that little boy, I was on my way back. My role when I went to Kosovo, um, just for the benefit of your listeners, I was appointed uh, as the Canadian contingent commander, and my responsibilities uh, were to oversee the Canadian policing interests in Kosovo, um, and we were asked by the United Nations to go in and help uh, rebuild the, the, the country, and our job dealt with law and order. So I was the Canadian contingent commander. I was responsible for well over 100 Canadian police officers in mission. As well, when you're on a UN mission, you usually have two roles. My other role, I was the chief of uh, operations, executive chief of operations, and I, I was to build, create the United Nations border police to protect the sovereignty of Kosovo. So that I had dual roles, and in that role, I had well over 200 uh, international police officers reporting to me. And one day I was coming back. I was on a, a routine visitation of one of my units in Mitrovica. And on my way back, I, I stopped in a, a place called Kosvopolye, just outside of Pristina. And I went into, um, well, uh, to be honest with you, I, I um, had to stop to, to go to the bathroom. I was looking for a place to go to the bathroom, to be honest with you. <laughs> And and I, I saw a farmer's market, and my roommates and I usually like going to these markets because you can get some incredible deals on things and some, some really neat foods you can try. And I didn't see anything that I liked, so I went to this great building. Who I, well, I ended up finding out it was, a, it was a hospital or a health center. And in there, I was looking for a washroom, and it, it struck me. This place was old, dark, and it just... It gave this energy of, of almost fear. Anyway, I, everybody was doing their thing, and I'm looking for signs, and I turned down this one hallway, and I started walking, and I noticed on my left the rooms were full of people, and I came across a room on my right-hand side, and there was a little boy. He was by himself. I walked into the room. There was something drawing me into that room, something drawing me into that room. And I got to tell you, one of my greatest fears before I ever went to Kosovo in all my time as a police officer was coming across the death of a child in a crash or anything else. That was my biggest fear. I had two children, and that, that was just, that created this incredible fear in me. And every time I go to a crash, I was always 
hoping and praying it wouldn't be a child involved. But in this one room, I walked in, and here's this little child, and right away he looked at me with these beautiful brown eyes. He was about 10 years old, and I could tell that something bad had happened to him because his legs, he was missing his legs. I could smell the burnt flesh and the gunpowder. The little child looked at me with this blank stare, and I was just drawn, and I had to, I didn't know what I was going to say, but I had to go up, and I had to hold this little boy's hand. And as I walked up to this little boy, he didn't cry, he didn't, and I could see the blood on his bandages, and and by the smell of the gunpowder, there's no doubt he stepped on, on a landmine, and his legs were blown off. I held this, I grabbed his hand, his right hand, and he looked at me with his beautiful brown eyes, just closed his eyes, didn't say a word. And what seemed forever to me, but was only a few minutes, I left. And I never even went to the bath. I just left and I was in a daze. But the minute I touched that boy's hand, I had a vision. I had a vision of him playing in this field and there was poppies. The wind was blowing, and I had a vision of him stepping on a landmine and seeing his legs get torn from his body. Don't ask me where that vision came from, but the minute I touched his hand, I had that vision, and it was so vivid. I left the hospital that day shaken. I came back a couple days later because I wanted to know, I wanted to get to know that boy, know his parents, and see if I could do anything. He was gone. And I tried to talk to the medical staff, and nothing against the medical staff, but it was almost like, well, number one, they didn't know what happened, but it didn't look like they cared. And that bothered me. And, you know, that was my own impression of it. I'm, I'm sure they did care. And that stuck with me uh, for a long time. And that really was the premise of my, my uh, PTSD. Well, and... In that, like when you talk about the medical staff, um, I think that you will agree, and, and you said it wasn't, it seemed like they were like that, but having had PTSD now and going through some of the things that you've gone through, isn't it like, I would think like a, a I don't know, like armor you put on so that you can't feel when they're dealing with such tragedies, especially children. And, and I don't mean to discount other people, but I mean, children somehow, they're caught in the middle uh, of all of this, even in car accidents, they're, somebody else is driving and something like that. So I would think that so many of these people that were dealing with these injured people and being part of this, as well as all your other officers that were there, it, it's almost impossible not to have to protect yourself in order to do your job. Would you oh, say that? Absolutely. And, you know, to, to take a step back, when you look at these things, it was war-torn possible. And um, in the first few months I was there, we, we, we dealt with investigation of mass graves. And we, there was machine gun fire, small arm fire, literally, and I say this without exaggerating, every single day around our, where we lived in, in Pristina, uh, for about the first six months. Matter of fact, the first couple nights, I had I, a blast of machine guns um, was just behind my door. Um, you know, and, and, and whether you'd heard a, a rocket-propelled grenade go off, um, we had to close our windows 
and put cardboard up so people wouldn't throw grenades through the windows into our place. Like Because we didn't know because some of the internationals, their houses were attacked. And when you look at, you know, whether it's helicopter gunships flying around with their, with their machine guns out, or one of the, one of the things that I, I, I recount and I talk about it in the book is walking down the street and having a, a tank drive by the street. That is incredibly unnerving. Like us in Canada, in North America, aren't used to, to, to hearing and feeling that and smelling the diesel fumes and all these things. And, you know, whether you're a first responder or a member of the, the armed forces or, Canadian police personnel, they stick with you. They really stick with you. And I'm sure the doctors and medical staff, the things they had to do, like I said, we, we, uh, we, had, we had mass graves of up to 30 people that we investigated when I was there. Yeah. Well, I'm going to stop on that note, and we're going to take a short break, because then I want to go on to talk to you about after you came back and, and your journey and, and leading to the book and what you do now and how we can get a hold of the book. So we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be talking to Randy Carlababa and uh, more of his story about his book, The Lies Behind the Truth and his journey. Need to book an appointment with a holistic health provider or find resources and products in Edmonton and surrounding area? Not exactly quite sure who to contact? or where to begin your search? Your Holistic Earth is the only online holistic marketplace that connects people like you who need help to the holistic health practitioners who provide a complete range of professional services and products. Look no further. Your Holistic Earth is your online holistic marketplace for a healthier and happier you. For everything holistic, visit yourholisticearth.ca. That's yourholisticearth.ca. Welcome back to the second half of Worldly Connections on TLR Station. Before the break, we've been talking to Randy Carlababa and his, his journey in Kosovo and some of his experience and what uh, was part of what led to his PTSD. That's post-traumatic stress disorder for those who aren't aware. And now we're going to just uh, talk a little bit more about his journey after coming back. And welcome back, Randy. Thanks, Janet. Glad to be back. <laughs> okay, so we were talking about the hospital and that, and then uh, and your different experience over in Kosovo. Now, how long were you uh, actually over there? Nine months. Nine months. And when you com- came back home, where did you go from there? Like, it must have been quite a shock to have gone first from where you were in Saskatchewan at a de- small detachment, right? And then you go to, to Kosovo and then you come back again. Like, that must have been like, uh, I can just shake my head at that. Well, there, there was definitely um, a little bit of a, an occupational shock. Um, but when in 2000, when my mission had completed, I went over in September of 1999. I returned, and uh, with the RCMP, uh, I was posted as the officer in charge uh, to a city in the Okanagan called Vernon, British Columbia. And from there, um, the journey—you know—it was it was a new posting for me and my family, and we enjoyed. The, the Okanagan and, and all that it had to offer. And in about 2003, my daughter, um, she asked me to go with her uh, for a medical appointment and uh, to deal with some some personal things. 
uh, girl things. And when I saw my daughter sitting in the doctor's chair and she looked at me and the second she looked at me, I could see the fear, but moreover, I could see the little boy's eyes to the hand that I held in Kosovo. And instantly, instantly, that minute, I was flooded with the smell of burnt flesh, uh, smell of blood, and feel the little boy's hands and seeing those eyes. Instantly, I, I was flooded with this emotion. I don't know why. And after that day, every single night, I would have these dreams of seeing this little boy, the vision that I had, having his legs blown up and, and smelling the burnt flesh and, and uh, the gunpowder. And that continued for a couple of years. And in those couple of years, as I, I talk about in the book, I didn't want to tell anybody because in the RCMP at the time, if you, especially as an officer at a rank of inspector, if you ever said that you were suffering from PTSD or stress-related illness, unfortunately you looked upon as weak. So I never said anything to anybody. And, and I continued to just try to cope from within. And whether it was consuming alcohol, um, but I was just, I wasn't coping well. I was, um, I would just blow up with these fits of anger over the littlest things, anxiety. Um, it was really debilitating. And then in 2005, after the death of one of my members, I actually had two members die in a very short period of time while on duty. But in the summer of 2005, one of my members drowned while on duty. And then I knew I couldn't handle it. And I was becoming a person that I didn't want to become. And then I went and sought professional help. And I really credit Dr. Len Stein with saving my life because the tools that he gave me um, and just his wisdom and guidance helped me. And plus, from what I understood about my own spirituality and the power of thought and belief. I knew I could lick this thing and it took a couple years and, and through the course of, of, of the treatment, you know, I'm at a point now that, yeah, you always suffer from PTSD, but you know how to cope with it. Right. But here's an interesting thing, Janet, when you talk about my journey um, in May of 2010, I was working out in a local gym and, I just came with my gym bag and I walked into the gym and all, there was this whole commotion. And in that commotion, the young girl at the counter said, call 911, call 911. I said, well, what's going on? And she had said, well, a guy just had a heart attack. So I looked over the side in the aerobics room and here's a man. He's in full medical distress. You know, And so I hopped over the counter and I asked, who knows CPR here besides myself? Two other gentlemen. Um... Bob and, and, and Shane, they helped me. They, they said they knew CPR. So we started working on this gentleman, and we worked on it for about 14 minutes before the paramedics came. And we knew, because I, I, I was I had the head, I was um, monitoring the pulse and everything else, and, and, and they were doing the, the air with the bag and, and the compressions. And I knew we had him twice. He came back, I had a pulse. We kept on going. The paramedics came. They administered the AED, the... Uh, 
the uh, external defibrillator. And that night, uh, they, they took him away and he was still alive. Um, and obviously I didn't feel like working out. But I went home and I was telling my wife what was what had happened that day. And, and, and for me, I've done CPR many, many times and it hasn't been very successful, to be honest with you. And so I was sitting there and after dinner, the phone rang. And it was uh, this gentleman's wife. Well, all of a sudden, I thought, oh, my, like, what am I going to do? And she started talking about her husband. And the first thing I go into the defensive mode, you know, the police kind of be compassionate and, like, you're going to have to console her. And the first thing she said is, thank you for working on my husband. He's in a coma. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, he's alive. And they said, and she said that they think the doctor said he's got a good chance of recovering. They don't know the brain damage. So I thought, wow, here's a here's a guy we actually saved. We actually saved. He's going to live. That night after I hung up from Mrs. Sweeney, I looked all out the window. And, I, and our kitchen window, it's a bay window. It overlooks Kalamalka Lake. It's a beautiful lake in, in the Okanagan. There on my deck, I had the vision of the young man, the little boy that was lying in the hospital bed. But he was standing on my deck with a smile on his face. Standing. Remember, he didn't have any legs. He was standing on my deck. He smiled at me, and I looked, and he was gone. Just that quick. That day, Janet, I, and since that day, I have not had any dreams. Not one dream. And that was May 2010. I think one of the messages that that I agree with you wholeheartedly with is to live your life like you were dying, that it, as if it was your last day. And I've heard that saying before, live like you, uh, there's no tomorrow, right? And uh, I think that's a message that we really need to get off. And the fact that there's help, right? Uh, when I was diagnosed in 2003 as, with PTSD, my psychologist, like the first one I saw, I wouldn't give you two cents for. And I, I warn anybody... Find somebody that truly wants to help you. Like the one that helped me, she gave me some amazing tools that I still use today. And we can overcome this. And, and if nothing else, we can live with this to the point we can have a very, very healthy life and uh, share experiences and help others with that. And I think that's what your book has done for me, and I will be sharing it too, because I think that it's a great message for for others that were in that same circumstances, and for families, right? Because the families don't always know. I'm lucky, both my husband and I were both in the RCMP, so we have that understanding. But before I ever got in, like I didn't understand some of the things. He'd call me one time and said, do you know so-and-so? And I say, yeah, I know his wife. I said, why? He says, oh, well, he was killed tonight. And then he hung up and I'm like, oh my God, like you're heartless. But that's that's on the other side of the fence. So, uh, when you, I think well, when you when you talk about live life like you're dying, there's a story about that, and and I'd like to share it with you quickly. Um, mm -hmm. Now, uh, I, I do a lot of work with uh, affordable housing for seniors, veterans, and families at risk, and I, and I created I was part of a creation of a, a not for profit society here in the Okanagan, and. And, and we've created this 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 not-for-profit society, and and my uh, I, I've been the president uh, since 2007, with the exception of one year when I was gone. Um, and my my vice president, uh, vice chairperson, 
was a guy by the name of Greg Schroeder, an incredible lawyer, very successful, very successful. And he was very philanthropic. He loved people. He cared for people deeply. And he had a, a, a zeal for life. And he was diagnosed with leukemia in 2008. 2009, he, took, he stepped away from the board, 2000, and he came back, and he, he said his leukemia was in remission. The summer of 2009, he announced to the board his cancer had come back and was bowel cancer in stage four. He was dying, and he said he was dying. And he, but his, his attitude, his zeal for life didn't change. And I asked him one day, because it, it really took me, this man's attitude. So I asked him, Greg, can we go for tea one day? So we did. And we went to his favorite bistro, sat at his favorite table. And I said to him, and I won't use the exact language uh, for the benefit of your listeners, but I said, Greg, your attitude blows me away. And he says, well, how so? And I said, Greg, you're dying, but you have this zest, this zeal for life. And he raised his hand very stoically, very stoically. And he said, Randy, I have one regret. I really wish I would have lived my life like I was dying sooner. You see, this man had everything. He owned apartment buildings. He could put a new Mercedes in his driveway every month of the year, pay cash, not a problem. That wasn't what was making him happy. Walking barefoot in the grass with his grandchildren were. So when you think about living life like you're dying, like I said, for us, the majority of us were raised on success being what you have. Well, when you understand you are not as a person what you have, how much you own, or any of that, and you and you you realize that there's no rewind buttons or no do-over buttons, and that this day that we're living this day will never dawn again. Because you know, Janet, every morning we wake up and we have a decision to make: Are we going to be a victim, or are we going to make the most of this day? But whatever you decide. Whatever you decide, that's a one heck of a price to pay for choosing to be a victim because this day will never dawn. And with Greg, when he said that, I started to realize, and through um, a, another personal experience that I had just recently, when a man was lying, a 71-year-old man was lying in bed, and he was diagnosed with terminal cancer and given less than one month to live. I was in the same room with him when his family came in, because um, I had a, an illness myself. And he said something that made me think of Greg, and he said to his family, I really wish I would have spent more time camping and spending with you. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, wait a minute. All our lives we work to achieve what someone else says to be success. But that's not it. And I'm not advocating you out spending money and being foolish. But Greg Schroeder, walking barefoot in the grass with his grandchildren. Mr. Hout, Gord Hout. God bless his soul. His thing was spending more time with his family. So tell me, when we start to think about it, and what I try to talk about in the book is understanding our life is like a vacation. You wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. It comes, it's gone. And that's our life. Our life isn't about paying bills. And when we, as soon as we realize that, the potential for happiness comes. And that's when we start to really experience life. And, and that's where the happiness, the joy, the peace comes from. And each and every one of us has this gift, Janet. And it's called the gift of power 
of thought and belief. And when we understand it, that's when we start to realize that happiness isn't from within or with, doesn't come from outside. It comes from within. That's when I talk about it in the book. That's when you start to manifest happiness. And yes, you start manifesting abundance, whether it's materialist or, 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 or relationships. Well, I, I agree with you 100%. And uh, after some experiences and close calls with myself and my husband as well, we tend to live our life a little different than some other people. And uh, But we, we're running out of time. We could keep on going here. But I want people to know where they can find your book. Oops. It's on Amazon, whether it's, and people can get it on Amazon.ca. If they're in Canada, they can get it at Chapters or they can order it through Chapters. That's Canada's uh, major uh, bookstore. It's available all over the world. So all you need to do is look for it. It's called Lies Beneath the Truth. Uh, Randy's website for the book is uh, liesbetweenthetruth.com. He's also got a Facebook page, The Lies Behind the Truth. And uh, yeah, you can get a hold of Randy also through the website. And please, that, that book is, uh, I really, really enjoyed it and would highly recommend it to anybody. I think that uh, more first responders anyways need to uh, live our lives a little better and not so much struggle, but to realize that there's more out there than sometimes we believe. So thank you, Randy, for being my guest today. Thank you, and thank you for sharing the, the story about my book, The Lies Behind the Truth. I appreciate that. Okay, you have a great day. Thanks, Janet. Take care. Are you interested in appearing on Worldly Connections, ready to work together and make miracles happen? Then Janet wants to hear from you. Contact her at Janet at FamilyConnect.com. That's Janet at Family Connect spelled C-O-N-N-E-K-T dot com. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Tune in next week, same day and time.